The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to take your Bibles and open them to Revelation chapter 3. And today we continue the exposition of the fifth of the churches of Revelation. This is the church at Sardis, a church that had a reputation of being a living church, and yet the Lord said, you are dead. Now this is the reason for the short title. It's in the first verse where the text says, you have a name that you are living, but you are dead. And that is a terrible condition for a church to be in to be a church that's in the night of the living dead. And here is a church in Sardis that's very near to being separated from the Lord. Christ does not live among the dead. And in case you hadn't heard this, Jesus left the grave a long time ago. And he's the life giver who does not live with the dead. I like the man from Gadara who was possessed with demons. You remember the story, how he lived among the tombs. And then when he met Jesus and put his faith in Christ, he couldn't live in a cemetery any longer. He left the dead to live with the living. And that's what Jesus always does. The dead are never the companions of Jesus. When Jesus went to the grave of Lazarus, he called him out from the deadness of the tomb. And once... Jesus touched a dead body that was on a funeral bier, and a young man came back from the dead. Jesus touched the body of a dead young little girl and said, Arise, and she was resurrected to life. Where Jesus is, there is life, not death. And so we're looking here at Sardis, which was a dead church, and therefore Jesus said to them, If you do not come alive, then I'm not staying here. Now, to those who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ becomes effectual to us through the Holy Spirit and the divine operation of the Word. And then the spiritually dead are regenerated. They are brought to life. And as the Word of God says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power for lost, doomed, dead sinners. Now, I'd like for us to look at this letter again. What does the Spirit say to this church at Sardis? In verse number 1, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now we see that death is the deep sadness that pervades this passage. 
The character of the Sardian church was like the city in which they lived. Last week we talked about the history of Sardis, how it was a city that was resting on its former glory. It was once the capital of the Lydian Empire, but long before this, about 500 years before, it lost its acclaim when the Persians captured the city. It was a city that was three times defeated and then resurrected. Under the Grecian Empire, it rose to prominence once again, but then Alexander was defeated. Alexander the Great was defeated by Antiochus, Epiphanes of the Seleucids. Then, under the Romans, it experienced a renewal, but was destroyed by a massive earthquake. And so Rome spent copious amounts of money on this city to bring it back to life again, but the city never experienced any greater uh, a glory again. Third time, that's not the charm for Sardis because it never returned to former glory. Sardis thought itself to be an impregnable fortress, they, and they might well have been if they watched. They fell because they were smug and they didn't watch. The enemy attacked the city and came into the city at night. They destroyed them by stealth, and the enemy overcome them and say, overcame them, and so Sardis fell. And Jesus used this history of the city their failure to watch and their reputation for laziness, he used that to rebuke this church because the church was just like the culture. It was complacent as the culture and they would not keep their eyes open to Satan and Satan always loves to destroy Christians. And it's at the time when Christians think they're safe and secure, when nobody can touch us, when nobody can harm us. We don't need to be watchful and it's at that time that Satan, the lion who lurks in the dark to destroy. The Sardian church was an active church, and this is what made their condition deceiving. They were busy, but they were complacent. They didn't know that the light of Christ in their church had burned out. They were busy with too many other things. The business of Christ was not the business of the church. Now, in the Scriptures, Jesus said that he holds the candlesticks, and those candlesticks are his churches, and the churches are supposed to give light. Remember that the author of this letter is Jesus Christ. And in the first chapter, in the introduction to these seven letters, he is the one who holds those seven golden candlesticks, the one who holds his churches, and each candlestick is supposed to be a light. Sardis is one of those churches... Jesus is the light of this world and He'll always be the light of this world and all of His candles must shine. And when those candles do not shine, when one of them goes out, all that Christ does is to replace it with another. And so when that candle is burning, that means that the Lord is there. And so in this letter, Jesus has another way of expressing this truth that His churches will shine for Him or they will not be His churches. He is the one described as having the seven spirits of God. Last week we discussed that. These seven spirits refer to all the virtues of the Holy Spirit. All of those are at work in Christ. And so consequently, the church that has Christ has all the power of the Holy Spirit. Its preachers have powers. Its people have power. Its it's, it's word, its gospel is preached in power. But conversely, without Christ, it fails. It's a Sardian church. There may be a lot of activity. There may be much energy, but it's activity without light. Last week, I said that we would ask some questions about the church, and these questions will help us to discern the meaning of this text. 
And so the first question that we ask is, what is the reputation of this church? And we see that the reputation is life. There's no doubt they're active. Things were happening in this church. Otherwise, no one would have thought they were alive. I believe that a visit to their services, someone would come in and they would see what they were doing and people would think, the Holy Spirit is here. and The Holy Spirit is working among these people. But the problem is that the public is not the judge of the Holy Spirit's work. Let me tell you how you know if the Holy Spirit is present in the church. One of the chief indicators is the amount of spiritual opposition that the church faces. Is Satan busy attacking the church? Is, is, is there trouble on every side, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.8? Is it difficult for Christians in that church to serve the Lord, as indicated by 2 Corinthians chapter 11? And as we look at Sardis, we notice how this church is different from the ones that came before. Where, where are those people on the inside of the church that are trying to tear it down? You don't find that in Sardis. Where are those on the outside of the church that are, that are opposed to it and persecuting the church like you find at Smyrna? You don't see it in the letter to Sardis. Where are those that are killing the members of the church and making them martyrs as in Pergamos? You don't see that in Sardis. Where are heresies recognized and false prophets said to be harming the church? That happened in Thyatira, but we don't see it in the letter to Sardis. Sardis is a church untroubled. There's no one bothering them. No persecution is mentioned. And why would Satan oppose them? Why would we expect to see so much trouble on this church? What is the point of persecuting a church that's already gone over to the culture? Why would Satan bother with a church that's already acting like the culture? Well, the church doesn't appear pained on the inside or the outside here. They're not bothered by heresies. They're not in a struggle to keep out that camel of compromise that we talked about at Pergamos. Now, the mark of a New Testament church is this constant struggle against false teaching that always tries to infiltrate. The living church fights. You want to talk about Veterans Day? A veteran of the Lord's army is one who's been in a fight. And the one who fights now and never gets comfortable with sin. But those who don't fight and are in these kinds of churches, they'll lay down with sin. It's not a problem. And so Satan has already stomped this church down. There's no need for him to pay attention to them. He already had them. And so he's just ready to move on to the next victim, to the next church. Because this one's already surrendered. If I were to stand before you this morning and to announce that you can relax, now it's time to take it easy, that would be your first clue that something is amiss. Now, people like to hear good news, there's no doubt about that. But if my good news is that we no longer need to fight, then you would have to say that's the worst news that we can hear because that means the Berean Baptist Church has accepted the culture and the culture accepts us. And I'm telling you, that's not going to happen unless we surrender to Satan. We are not going to get along with this world if we're faithful to stand for Christ. The church that stands for Christ will have no peace until Christ returns. And then the church won't be in the world. A true church is a church that's always fighting the world. Now, we don't need to fret about that. We don't need to worry because the world opposes us. 
It's supposed to be that way. Did you know that? The Word of God promised that it would be that way. This is the way it is supposed to be. The God of this world does not surrender. The God of this world, who is Satan, is always fighting. He uses every demon that he has until the bitter end. And so don't ever think that our neighborhood, our city, our county, our country will ever like what we do when we preach the gospel of Christ. If we get along sparkling well with the world, then the church is dead. Why? Because it never happens in true churches. There's never a moment's rest. The gates of hell are always against the church. We can't rest because Satan doesn't rest. Understand, you can't tire out spiritual beings. They don't get tired and take a rest. They're either planning an attack or they're in an attack. And so you can't sit down and rest for even a moment. Now some of you might not even realize this, but when you're unhappy with the church because of some opinion that you hold, and when those opinions are your petty preferences, Satan's using you. He's working in you to help kill the church, and you're his ally. I know that there are some that are concerned about too much negative preaching. If there isn't any negative preaching, then we've already given in. How do I know that our church is alive? I know that it is because when I'm through reading the Word and preaching the Word, somebody will stop on the way out and say, I disagree. Well, disagreements are okay. I don't mind disagreements. They're fine if they're founded on the Word. But disagreements are no good if they're founded on opinions. But that disagreement is okay in this respect. It's a confirmation that what we say is controversial, that it's not easily accepted. And I see that sometimes, and maybe you've noticed it before, that occasionally we'll have a visitor that will come in and sit down in one of our seats and stay there for just a few minutes until the sermon begins, and they see what we're going to say, and or I'm going to say, and then they get up and walk out. I'm not alarmed by that. I know that truth is like acid on the skin. That doesn't bother me. If it makes the gainsayers uncomfortable, that's okay with me. I'm not trying to drive people away, but if I preach the truth, I'm not worried if they're upset. Why are they upset? Because they hate the truth. So if there's opposition, I know that I'm speaking the truth. Jesus said the world will hate us because of truth. So it's okay. It's a sign of of life to a dead world. We pray for those people, but we're not distressed by them. Opposition is a positive sign for us. That means that we are aligned with God. Light and darkness don't dwell together. If every flavor of opinions gets along well, if every stripe is a part of our rainbow, and everybody loves our church, then I know something is wrong. The devil has us, and he's destroyed our message. And so I regularly get letters from ministries that say how well they're doing, I never hear a word of complaint from them, how they're struggling with morality in their church and how things are tough because of the encroachment of heretical theology. No, they're getting along just fine, and they're all just praising Jesus. Everything's good. They look alive, but they're dead. And their acceptance in their community is the stench of death. I can't say that I've always agreed with what this church did in the past. I'm not in perfect agreement with former pastors. 
Some of the criticisms that our church received, maybe they were warranted, but this I know about Berean Baptist Church, this church has always had a reputation for being different. And I commend the pastors for this. They preached against sin, and they would not tolerate sin. Oh, I firmly believe that the gospel has always been preached here, that standing for Jesus Christ has always been preached here, and this church has never made an effort to be the community church that everybody feels good about attending. I've experienced that in visitation in our neighborhoods. Occasionally, I'll run into someone who's been here for a long time that they know this church, they know the reputation of our church, and they know that we're not Sardis because they can't think of anything that they like about it about us. Opposition reveals there is light in this church and darkness does not like light. Our old sign out front used to spark a lot of controversy. I think that's the only thing that I liked about that old sign. I, I, I was never bothered to come in on a Monday morning and hear a message that's left by an irate neighbor who hated some title, even a title of a sermon that we put on the sign. Those are Mondays that I would come in and say, praise God, we're still alive. I mean, when somebody takes time to write the newspaper to complain about a simple sermon title, or it takes three blog posts to, on the internet to say how much that we are out of touch and how condemning we are, I know that Sardis is in our rearview mirror. We're not dead. We're still touching the nerves of the haters. James wrote, count it all joy. When you fall into divers' temptations, that means you're doing something right. If trials are everywhere, you're doing something right. Count it all joy because you're on Christ's side, not the world's. Peter said, if we suffer for doing right, then we are to be happy. And so for all who are tired of negative preaching, then I'll say to you, go out there and win the world to Christ. And when the world is one then the culture will be okay and we don't need negative preaching. But until that time, be happy to preach the Word of God. There won't be peace with the world. If you find it, you're dead because nobody bothers a dead church. And nobody persecuted Sardis because the church did not affect the culture. They were the culture. And so here is Jesus as He comes to the church and the last whiff of death He's down to the limit. He, he can't stand anymore in this church, and he is not going to stay among the tombs. Now, as a sub-question to this first, I would ask this. What goes on in a church that's dead? Well, they're not dead to the world. If they were, they wouldn't survive. There wouldn't be a congregation if the Christ can't stand them and the world can't stand them either. So something must be going on in a dead church that affects or draws, I should say, more of the dead. Some years ago, the seeker-sensitive model of church growth became popular, and the thought was that people are always seeking satisfaction. They want peace in their lives. They want happiness and fulfillment. And the church can provide that for them. But they also want something that doesn't look too much different than what they already have. They still want to do the things that they like. They still have these worldly things that they like to do and they enjoy. And so what they want to do is just to add Jesus on top of all that to smooth out some of the rough edges. And that's understandable. In an age where you have unruly kids, 
where you have rotten schools, where there is divorce and addiction, and we have all these problems, people are looking for stability. What can I do to solve the problem? And so finding a church to suit them has little to do with repentance, little to do with surrender to Christ, and especially has very little to do with suffering. Now what they want is motivational speeches, not good doctrine. They, they want to be self-satisfied. And the seeker-sensitive model had this as their mantra. We are the church that people don't like to attend. If people don't like to go to church, we are, I should say it this way, it's better. If people don't like to go to church, we're the church for them. We're different because we give you what you want. So they're the felt needs church. The pastor of that church is the life coach. And they're self-help groups for every problem imaginable. And none of it has very much to do with the gospel. So the seeker-sensitive movement seeks to find out what people want and then provides that for them. And what is it that people seek? They still love sin, and so they want sanitized sin. It's self-idolatry. And the church is happy to provide that. How much opposition from the world does a church like that have? There aren't any struggles. There's no pressure from the culture. The church is Sardis. It's a part of the culture. And when we talk about church programs, I'm certainly not opposed to church programs. But I know that a church program never fixed anybody. There's only one that will, and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that requires total surrender to the lordship of Christ, and that invites hardship, and it's supposed to. It's designed through those hardships to strengthen believers in the faith and to sanctify them. The power to live that life and be satisfied with it is the real power of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the believer. You, wouldn't, you, you would be surprised at the numbers of solicitations that I receive on ways to grow the church. Somebody's always trying to sell us some kind of a program that they guarantee that if you'll do this, your church will grow exponentially. There are dozens of those. But I think the one that really intrigues me the most is, is the Christian comedy circuit. That we're told that if we will devote a night to have a Christian comedian, then we'll attract outsiders to the church. The community loves comedy. So they'll come, because when they come, they'll see what a fun church we are. And so the solicitations come with five-star recommendations from pastors who have tried it, and they tell about how great the numbers increased from their comedy show. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me they didn't have very much success with the plain old gospel of Christ. So they need to try something else. They need something more attractive to get people in. A fire and brimstone sermon? No, you're not going to hear that. It makes me wonder sometimes, what was it that the Apostle Paul preached? Why were people attracted to what Paul said? Why were people getting saved in the first century when Paul and the Apostles preached? What was his secret? Well, it must have been that he told jokes till midnight. Eutychus fell out the window dying laughing. That's his problem. Now, that's, that's just a start on the insane suggestions about how to grow the church. The world's programs are adapted to the church everywhere that you go because we are in the entertainment age, and so there must be an app for church growth. Activities are 
promoted to grow the church, and they will. If that's the church's method, the church will grow, but it will grow with the living dead. The population of the living dead will be high in the church. Is that the New Testament model? Or rather, do we find the New Testament model is that the once dead shall live? Is the New Testament model death to sin and all that sin offers? Is it resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ by those who have committed everything to the glory of Christ? If that's not it, then the church is dead. It may look alive, but Jesus will say, you are dead. I haven't seen too many of these churches that are all excited about their programs and activities if they should learn that this activity is going to end with a solid presentation of the gospel and we will demand that you repent of your sins, place your faith in Christ and surrender to His Lordship. People don't want that. They want the jokes. And jokes won't do that. Is there anything wrong with church programs? No. There's anything wrong with the church program as long as the focus is right. D.L. Moody once said, I would rather say this one thing I do rather than these 40 things that I dabble with. And the church is dabbling with a lot of things other than the gospel. And so we need to be the church that says this is the one thing that we do. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and it is by that gospel that you're born again. And that's one of the issues with deadness. It's the loss of the focus on the one thing that the church should do. The gospel is our program. It's nothing but the gospel of Christ preached to a world that's dying in sin. A world that must change from what it is because it's on the way to hell. And if you don't tell people that, the church might look alive, but it's dead. People aren't used to doctrinal preaching anymore. They've not heard it. Do you know that there are many people that grow up in church never having heard a doctrinal sermon? Oh, they grow up with funny sermons and with application, life application sermons. There's five steps to this and seven steps to that. Oh, I do believe that all good doctrinal preaching must have an application, a life application, but you've got to be prepared to accept the doctrine first. You've got to go through the doctrine to get to the application. The doctrine is for your sanctification. That's your life application. How are you going to become more like Christ? And it's only in your sanctification. But too often, doctrinal expository preaching just brings on yawns. People don't want to hear that. And that's the result of an entertainment-focused generation. And so when we preach the gospel, we compete with smartphones and iPads and video games and television. We live in a digital world, but we preach an analog message. I understand doctrinal preaching can kill a church. Now, you probably expected never that I would say that. When does doctrinal preaching kill a church? Well, I think it does. I think it kills when we sit here in our church with an us versus them mentality. And so instead of evangelizing, we actually want to keep people out because we don't want to deal with the diversity of opinions. Now here's the odd thing. Without inviting people in, we get complacent. And we're never able to sharpen our skills to fight off wrong opinions. Now here's another very strange thing to say. We need some heresy to fight. 
One of the most unusual scriptures in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. I want you to return, uh, to return there, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 18. And this 18th chapter is the subject... The subject is worship in the church. It, it talks about subjection of women in the church and divisions in the church. And the Corinthian church was a divided church, which prompted Paul to write a good deal about the unity of the body of Christ. This chapter is also about the Lord's Supper. I read about it, uh, read from it, just about every time that we take the supper. And it teaches that we must be confessed, unified Christians before we partake of the supper. Uh, Paul wrote this very strange section here connected to those church problems. Look at verse, verses 18 and 19. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. We need some heresies in the church to prove who are the true believers? Now, of course, we don't keep the heresies. We fight against those. We root them out and those that hold them. But here is a church that didn't fight the heresy. The heresies came for sure, but they didn't care to contend with those. They accepted them. They made them a part of their church programs. Now, Paul's idea is not to let heresy in so that we can tolerate it, but that heresy draws blood. It draws a line. It marks a line in the sand. The difference between us and them. It's a battle line that shows that there's life in the church. Enough life that we can fight with the Spirit of God in us against that heresy. And so I never mind sharpening my skills against heresy. I love to preach against it. And thus we have negative preaching. But I positively affirm the gospel of Christ while negatively denouncing all heresies. Either we convert the heretics... Or we preach them out of the church. Either way, that's good for the church. And this is the reason Paul said you need heresy. It'll prove that you aren't dead. You must be alive to Christ to defend against it. And so we don't want to sit here in our church in cold, dead orthodoxy because we're too lazy to get out into the heat of the battle. Uh, we're better with heresy than we are without it. If we're cold, dead, and lifeless, we aren't without it. We've just accepted it. Deadness is heresy. We've lost the battle thinking that we are the victors, and that's the paradox of being alive yet dead. Now, many churches have too high an opinion of themselves. Their salvo is the community activity. This, they say, this is the proof that we are alive. Look how much we do for our community. Christ offers the opinion that counts, not men. They're dead. The community activities, giving them a reputation of being alive. But if those activities are not accompanied with the uncompromising gospel of Jesus Christ, then you don't have anything but dead men walking. That answers the question of reputation. Who gave the church its reputation? Is it the world or is it Christ? Well, next we move on into the critical area of correction of the church. They are dead so what must they do by, about that? I've only got time to briefly pose this question and we'll come back and discuss it in the next time that we talk about this church. What are they required to do? The next verses are a recipe for revival. Revival means 
to bring back to life. And churches have long recognized that there are times when a church needs to be jump-started. And in the past, and still sometimes today, people will use, churches will use prolonged times of revival meetings. As I say, some churches still use the method. It's not required in the New Testament, but it's certainly not discouraged. Revival times have gotten shorter. There's historical evidence that prolonged types of revival services are not much older than the Great Awakening of the early 18th century. That doesn't make them wrong, but neither does it make a church wrong that doesn't have prolonged types of nightly preaching. Now, I've noticed, though, that these revivals get shorter and shorter. I I know because I've been involved in that. Many churches schedule revival. It's just part of the yearly routine. You have a revival once or twice a year. When I was young, we did this. In our church, we had two two-week revivals, one in the spring and one in the fall, and each of those revivals was preceded by a week of prayer meetings in members' homes. Then after a while, the prayer meetings were dropped. Later, two revivals became one revival each year, and then after a while, two weeks were dropped to one week, and then a little while longer, one week was dropped to a weekend. And I remember that there were revivals that were great, There were revivals where people were moved and it made a real difference in the church. But then there were revivals and there came revivals that aren't really revivals. Sustained preaching does not necessarily bring a revival. Neither does a popular evangelist who has seven sermons that he's honed over 50 times of preaching them in 50 different venues. So how does the church have revival? Well, the method is here in these verses. And I hasten to add this, that we are not hurt by more preaching. The more preaching that we get is not going to hurt us. Nobody is hurt by the Word of God that's faithfully proclaimed by preachers of the Gospel. My revival is to go to the Shepherds Conference each year where I hear solid doctrinal sermons without the foolishness of a lot of evangelists. The evangelist revival is generally not revival because in two two days the church is right back where it was. And you can call me cynical about evangelists, but that's how I see it. I know that some of them are very good. And as I preached before, though, evangelists today do not follow the model of New Testament evangelists. In the New Testament, the evangelist stayed with the church. He didn't leave the church. And so an evangelist didn't pop in with seven sermons and three suits. I I don't see much doctrinal change in these churches after revival. They don't seem to get too much right after that, and so I think really that that would happen if the Holy Spirit was in the revival. But then having said that, I do need to stop with these introductory remarks to the second point. There is a method of revival, a biblical method of revival, and we find it in these next verses. So to whom is the Spirit speaking about revival? Well, it's not to the dead members of the church, the dead ones, are ones with a false profession of faith. They're the ones that drag the church down. Nothing's going to be done with them until somebody gives them a gospel message and they believe it and they get saved. You can't revive people that have never lived. And neither will the spiritually dead be stirred up to do anything for Christ. So who is the message for? Well, it's for those that are are weak in the faith, those that still have some life in them, 
And since this is a letter to a true church, then there are people in this church who have made real professions of faith. They are people that are born again. The others are branches that need to be broken off and burned in the fire, while these are branches that need to be pruned. They need to be tuned up some and to become what Christ wants them to be. They must awaken. These are people that are too lax. They're too lazy. They are complacent. And if they continue as they are, the Lord will leave them. And I don't mean that they'll lose their salvation, and we'll also look at that in one of the later messages. They will not lose their salvation, but these are people that will no longer be a church of Jesus Christ. That's where we'll begin next time. How is a dead church revived? Now, the Scriptures didn't have an answer for a heartfelt revival, the kind that picks the church up, and sends enough electricity through the people to keep the light of Jesus Christ burning in them. Let me just close today with these thoughts. If we are alive to Christ, there will be strife. Struggles are unavoidable. The opposition never relaxes, and so neither can we. They are energetic in their denials of Christ. And folks, we have to be more energetic in our affirmation of Jesus Christ. So if I tell you this, Relax. Folks, relax. We finally defeated Satan. Then you know that I've been fooled. I'm already dead. And then my preaching is going to infect you, and then you will be dead. We must be glorified before our struggles are over. Now, to end all struggles, either Christ must come or you must die. Then you can relax. And then I won't need to preach to you any longer. But until then, folks... Satan will walk all over us if we don't fortify ourselves and fight. If Satan doesn't bother us anymore, then neither will Christ. Do you understand that? If we stop fighting because we think that we're done, Christ will leave us too. Because if we're dead, he won't live among the tombs. So expect negative sermons. Expect me to preach against the culture. Expect me to preach against heresy. We're sharp and we're alive when we do. Now, as I close today, finally, this is what the church used to sing. The veterans of the Lord's army, this is what they used to sing. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. At the name of Jesus, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in faith and spirit, one eternally. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the church of Jesus, constant, will remain. Gates of hell never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, which can never fail. Onward then, ye people, join our happy throng. Blend with ours your voices in the triumph song. Glory, laud, and honor unto Christ the King. This through countless ages men and angels sing. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Woe is me 
if I don't preach the gospel. Christ, crucified, risen, living, and coming again. Alive for Jesus Christ may this church ever be. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we're in a battle. Every single day we're fighting the world when we stand for you. This is how we know that we're making the correct stand. The world will not accept us. The world will not like us. Not until they have been won through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to preach that because without it the world dies and goes to hell. If we relax, if we sit back and say, we don't need to do this, then we have just consigned brothers and sisters all across, or people all across the world to death and destruction without the gospel of Christ. We must preach it. It's through the gospel that people are saved. Lord, we ask that we would be a church that does this. We always stand for you. We are always alive. We always proclaim Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. Speak to the hearts of Christian people today. Draw them close to you and say, Lord, help us to be soldiers in that army who never give up the fight, who never turn back, who take every weapon of warfare that you've promised in your word and use it with the ability of the Holy Spirit in us. Help us to do that, Lord. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.